Oh, welcome to the Backyard Professor videos. I've got to find a place to put my materials so I don't lose them. I have an unfortunate situation that I have to address. If for nothing else, uh, I have to beat this dead horse because it keeps coming back uh, never alive and vibrant, but every now and then it'll raise its head, and so what I have to do is knock it back down simply because the fight is over. What am I referring to? I am referring to the Joseph Smith Papyri and the Book of Abraham and some of the LDS defenses of that book. In the book a Reason for Faith by Laura Hales. She asked several uh, LDS scholars to comment and defend various controversial aspects within Mormonism, which is pretty much everything these days. Nothing fits at all. Carrie Mulstein agreed to talk about the Book of Abraham and the Joseph Smith Papyri in his chapter, chapter 8, the explanation-defying Book of Mormon, which is <laughs> a ridiculous title. Molstein, unfortunately, does a very, very bad thing, in my opinion. He simply repeats the information that he helped with whoever it is write the church essay on the Book of Abraham on translation and historicity that they've put on the church website. They did that scholarly essay quite a few years ago. This response by Mulstein here in this text is in 2016, and Mulstein by this time, all of the heavy hitting, all of the various arguments uh, of the big guns in Mormon Egyptology and the big guns in Egyptology the battle has already occurred. So Molstein is simply taking a Reader's Digest description and he is reassuring the faithful that nothing really bad has happened. And in this very short, he simply takes his stance that was put into the Mormon Church essay. Every single aspect of Mulstein, of John Gee, of Michael Dennis Rhodes, of Hugh Nibley, everything within the Mormon apologetic that is trying to show Joseph Smith did not goof up with the papyri, all of that has been soundly refuted with excellent scholarship. Mulstein ignores all that. Of course, he's trying to let everyone know that everything is still okay, that Joseph Smith still has a chance. It may be one in 150 billion quadrillion to the 50 billionth quadrillion power, but there is a very, 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 very small sliver of hope, and even that is deceptively misguiding what the issue is. This war is over. Let me explain a couple of ideas in Mulstein's discussion, and then I will get to 
the response of the church essay on the church website by Robert Rittner. Because, of course, the church website did not engage with any Egyptologist nor with the current state of affairs. It just simply ignored all of the controversy and tried to show how everything Joseph Smith was talking about was all correct, it was accurate, historically we're on firm ground, etc. And at this point we have to just say, that's just deceptive. You cannot trust Mormon apologetics on the Joseph Smith Papyri or the Book of Abraham any longer. I never will again, especially after reading this incredible attempt to save the faith, which unfortunately for Kerry Molstein, it sucks to be you, dude. I, I have to say, this is deception. Not once does he mention anybody who disagrees and has shown with the evidence that his argument is false. It's just false. It's that simple. So let me get on with Kerry Molstein, and then I will show how Robert Rittner has completely shown that these guys are just on the wrong foot. They don't have any validity whatsoever. On page 81, Molstein says, because it was almost universally assumed that all of the papyri Joseph Smith had once owned had been destroyed in the Chicago fire. It shocked everyone when they showed back up in 1967. The fragment that drew the most interest was the one that contained the vignette or drawing that was the original source of facsimile number one, justifiably so, I would add. Part of the reason this fragment drew so much attention was because of the possibilities it presented. It seemed that perhaps we could now test Joseph Smith's revelation abilities. Many members of the church assumed that the text, got a wave at the walkers. <laughs> How you doing? Good. Okay, what was I lying about? Oh yes, it seemed that perhaps now we can test Joseph Smith's revelatory abilities. Many members of the church assumed that the text of the papyri that surround the original facsimile number one was the source of the book of Abraham. It seemed this might give them the chance to demonstrate that Joseph Smith's translating abilities was very, very good. On the other hand, Anna-Mormons also assumed that the text adjacent to that drawing was the source of the Book of Abraham, and they were excited to show that Joseph Smith blew the, the translation. To disprove Joseph's prophetic abilities, is how Molstein put it. Sadly, neither of these groups took the time to carefully examine their assumptions, and that is pure bunk. Uh, that's just a direct lie. Molstein knows better than this. See, he's writing for the Mormon teenagers and the Mormon youth or whoever it is he's writing for. And uh, that, that simply faults. Uh, Bear did careful study in 1968, Wilson in 1968, Parker in 1968, Mark Wart, Dan Vogel, Brent Metcalf, Ashman, Thompson, Mark Conan, and Rittner. All of these guys have been carefully exploring and examining this. For, for Molstein to say that just destroys his credibility entirely. That's simply false.
it, it's just that simple. It really is. Boy. So when the text was translated and was found to be a common Egyptian funerary document called the Book of Breathings, many felt they could now demonstrate that Joseph Smith was not an inspired prophet. And he says, this probably more than anything else has caused confusion regarding the Book of Abraham. Let me clarify that because that's misleading also. There is no confusion about the Book of Abraham and the translation of the papyri to the Egyptologists. Joseph Smith got it wrong. The confusion is all in the Mormon side because, of course, they don't have the evidence that they thought the papyri would present. The evidence does not confirm Joseph Smith. It destroys him. That's why there's confusion. But it's all on the side of the Mormons. Much of this confusion comes because so many don't realize that they have made an assumption about the source of the book of Abraham. That also is a little bit misleading because there is no assumption here. We have complete evidence that we have the original papyri, right? Mosin is trying to push it away a little bit to get some breathing room against Joseph Smith in order to sneak in faith, and it does not work. It just doesn't. So, anyway, so how can we test this assumption, he asks. And he says there are a few things that we can do. The first step is to examine the text itself to see if it contains any clues about its relationship with the associated pictures. That's fair. And we've done that. And we found that it does have a very good association with facsimile number one. Absolutely. The second would be to examine similar papyri from the same time period. And this is all obfuscation. There's no reason to go anywhere else. There's no reason to compare anything whatsoever. We have the papyri. Did Joseph Smith translate it correctly? You notice how they keep, the Mormons have no choice but to keep, keep bringing in as much irrelevant materials as they know how to do in order to forestall arriving at the only conclusion that the evidence gives us a possibility of arriving at. Isn't that fascinating? Mulstein continues to muddy up the argument in the waters, which is the only choice they've got. They can't be straightforward with this stuff. And of course, he references nothing about the Egyptologists' materials or responses or engagements back and forth. And uh, he knows those happen. I mean, he's good friends with John Gee. And uh, Robert Rittner just simply massacred John Gee's arguments about a second longer role and all that. Molstein's well aware of that. And yet, he brings up John Gee's argument again. This is after all of the already occurred discussion. Now, this just isn't the way to do it. This gives Mulstein no credibility. What it does is it convinces us he's got something to hide. And he does, <laughs> really. The third way to test the assumption would be to examine the accounts of eyewitnesses who saw the papyri and knew from what material Joseph Smith said he was translating. 
I have demonstrated in my article that John Gee misuses those witnesses. Molstein to simply take John Gee's side is just simply ridiculous. But that's all he can do, right? So anyway, a study of the text reveals that Abraham 1, 12, and 14 refer to the drawing known as facsimile number one. That's true in the book of Abraham, yes. Yet they refer to the drawing as being at the beginning of the text, which strongly suggests that it was not right next to the text. It does nothing of the sort. The fibers were matched. We know facsimile number one was attached to the Sensen text that Joseph Smith used as the basis of his translation. Molstein is simply regurgitating John Gee's discredited theory. It, it's sad. I mean, he's reduced to rubble. And so all he can do is pick through a few of the pieces of scrap that is complete junk and say, oh look, a diamond. And it's not, it's just a dumb piece of lava rock, right? So what he says is, consequently, based on the assumptions, he keeps using assumptions. It's not assumptions, we've got the evidence. Uh, what he is calling assumptions is actual evidence, as any reader confined by reading both sides of this argument, right? He says, these may or may not be true, but it makes it clear that we are not safe in assuming that the text adjacent to facsimile number one is by default the source of the book of Abraham. And his assumption that these are assumptions and that we're not safe in doing so is completely erroneous. We are not only safe, all of the evidence points to this, including what Joseph Smith himself said, which Molstein has to ignore. Isn't that odd? Again, we find the same thing. John Key did the same thing. Hugh Nibley did the same thing. Michael Dennis Rhodes did the same thing. The apologists cannot afford to accept Joseph Smith's own words about which papyri he was translating. Isn't that funny? I mean, that's just astonishing, right? So anyway, that, that's the main problem. And what is really interesting here is on the translation of the different uh, facsimile one, number two, number three, and the different uh, figures and the hieroglyphics and all that. He says, typically, and this is on page 86, typically when people have asked what the Egyptians would say these drawings meant and how this compares with what Joseph Smith said they meant, they actually end up comparing it to what modern Egyptologists say they mean. This is, of course, understandable because we do not have access to any ancient Egyptians and we must assume modern Egyptologists are reliable replacements. But we know that Egyptologists, including myself, are often wrong regarding what ancient Egyptians would have said on a subject. But that's not the question. We can cross-check both in time, place, context, and translation of the language. The Egyptologists 
know the language. See, this is a subtle ad hominem that Nibley used back in the 1960s. What he has to try to do, Molstein here, is get us to mistrust that we actually do know much. And that's just simply not true. It's, the language is well known, truly. We do know how to translate the Egyptian language. Otherwise, none of the coffin texts, none of the pyramid texts, none of the Book of Dead or the Book of Breathings would make any sense whatsoever. But they do make sense. And what's interesting is, it doesn't matter whether it's a French Egyptologist, an American Egyptologist, a German Egyptologist, a Czechoslovakian Egyptologist, an Australian Egyptologist, or a Russian Egyptologist, it's irrelevant. The question is not, have we translated this correctly. Does this equate to that word no? Meaning may come up and be have good nuances. That's not the issue. Molstein is saying we can't even translate this stuff. Oh, at least he's implying that and that's simply that's amateur silliness. We do know. Make no mistake about it. We do know. And then finally, he goes through the, the different uh, facsimile number one, facsimile number two. And on facsimile number three, on page 87, he says, facsimile number three is similar. It has received the least amount of scholarly study and attention, so it has the smallest amount of disagreement or agreement attached to it. What does that even mean? <laughs> it has the smallest amount of disagreement or agreement. It does not. Not to the Egyptologists it doesn't. Maybe to the Mormon scholars who are miffed that none of Joseph Smith's translations match. But to the Egyptologists, there's no question whatsoever. Again, all the confusion is with the Mormons, not the Egyptologists. For, for the Mormons to attribute their confusion to the scholars, that's cheating. That doesn't work. It wipes out your credibility, Carrie. Believe me. There are some elements that I do not understand from either the Egyptological, no kidding, or the Latter-day Saint point of view. Yet we do know that this very type of drawing was associated with Abraham by some ancient Egyptians. And that is simply false. And unfortunately, he quotes John Gee a fellow Mormon who has every bit as much interest in confirming Joseph Smith as Kerry Moolstein. So this is inbred scholarship is what's happening. He doesn't quote a valid Egyptologist at all. He quotes a Mormon apologist who happens to have a PhD in Egyptology and has used that PhD incorrectly and misused every aspect of Egyptology in order to verify Joseph Smith got stuff right and John Gee has been completely destroyed Egyptologically with his credibility. None of his various theories have ever panned out and isn't it interesting? If Mormons actually really did have the truth of this papyri on the book of Abraham they wouldn't have to keep proposing different theories all over the place. Oh, well, it could be that. Well, well, now we have this. Well, no, don't count Joseph Smith out yet. I have another theory. It's none of that. 
they wouldn't have had to have written tens of thousands of pages to defend Joseph Smith if it would have just been the truth. Joseph Smith had the papyri, he translated it, and here's the book of Abraham. But that's not what we get. The evidence refutes that stance. Therefore, Joseph Smith is false. That's why you have tens of thousands of pages of Mormons trying to defend Joseph Smith against the single, obvious, and very well-evidenced theory. Joseph Smith blew it. My good friend RFM pointed that out to me. Radio Free Mormon, thumbs up to you, man. He is a very skillful author. So, really, truly, uh, this, this stance by Molstein just does nothing for Joseph Smith or the Book of Abraham. And his, his information on the papyri is entirely erroneous, truly. And I want to share some ideas from Robert Rittner's response that Mulstein ignores just to show you I'm not just talking out the side of my mouth. My battery is running low, darn it. So I'm going to just do this real quick. You can easily Google search Robert Rittner, Translation and Historicity of the Book of Abraham, a response. All you have to do is Google search Robert Rittner and Joseph Smith, or Joseph Smith Papri, or Book of Abraham, any of it. I mean, the, the apologists can't figure that out yet, that they can't just say anything they want and retain credibility is utterly astonishing. The church doesn't even care if its own scholars spread falsehoods. And Rittner says that at the end of this article. He says, you know, Molstein, Gee, you're not doing your church any favors by continuing to lie. Essentially, let me sum this up. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm running out of battery, which really sucks. I forgot to charge it last night. Rittner basically says the argument that there was human sacrifice in ancient Egypt is a complete misunderstanding and it's based on a mistranslation of Mulstein and a historic misunderstanding. And Rittner shows that in detail in this article. Google this and read it yourself. Don't take my word for it, Google it. The other thing is Gee's argument in that church essay on the church website, which is historically inaccurate, and the church claims, well, we're being completely open and honest now. No, it is not. It should update that essay, but it hasn't, and it won't, because it's not into teaching us the truth, right? I mean, obviously. So, the, uh, yeah, he shows the problems are by no means limited to the facsimiles. The text itself includes anachronistic and impossible expressions, including a Potiphar's Hill located in Ur of the Chaldees, and situations supposed Egyptian rites of human sacrifice in Ur conducted by a priest of Pharaoh. Uh, after the manner of the Egyptians, wherever one locates Ur of the Chaldees, human sacrifice dictated there by priests of Pharaoh is unbelievable to credible scholars of the ancient Near East. Nor was there any Pharaoh, the eldest son of Egyptus, the daughter of Ham, 
Pharaoh is a title, not a name. Joseph Smith didn't understand that. Neither is Egyptus, Egypt, an ancient Egyptian personal name, but the name for the primary temple in Memphis, it's a temple. <laughs> that became generalized outside of Egypt as a designation for the country. See, accurate translation of Revelation would not produce these basic errors. And boy, he's got that one right, right? And furthermore, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. While Molstein notes capital punishment for political rebellion and crimes against individuals and the state, including theft of temple property or resources, there is no parallel to the Book of Abraham intended martyrdom for refusing to worship the images of Egyptian gods. That would happen under Roman persecution of Christianity. But personal worship, or its refusal, was not a basic concern of the ancient Egyptian state. The LDS citation of Molstein's work does not support the narrative of the Book of Mormon. And yet it quotes Molstein. Well, Molstein is probably one of the consultants. Because see, the brethren who get to talk to Jesus, who knows everything in the universe, they don't have a clue what they're talking about when it comes to the Egyptian aspects or the ancient history of the Book of Abraham. They're just a bunch of ne'er-do-well dolts. They don't know anything. So they are deferring to the scholars with this theme, you must build faith which means the scholars have to fudge the facts, uh, mistranslate texts, bring in all sorts of irrelevancies, etc., to maintain the faith. But to get to the actual uh, historical truth, no, the church is not interested in that, and neither are its scholars. But the rest of the world is. See? Build faith for what? So that we can see historically you've cheated and therefore mistrust you and therefore destroy our faith? Uh, that's not even half intelligent, you guys. And yet that's what you keep doing. Someday maybe you'll wake up. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know. You know. Anyway, oh yeah, and then Guy's saying that the facsimile number one has to do with Abraham in the magical papyri uh, because the name Abraham is under the couch. And so this is proof that Abraham was being sacrificed just exactly like Joseph Smith said in the book of Abraham. And we have the evidence in the magical papyri. That is all just wrong. It's so wrong, it's not even wrong. Right? And Rittner talks about that. Look this article up. It's a pretty detailed. The use, I'll give the summary. He goes through the details. The use of the name Abraham in all of these magical passages derives from late Egyptian knowledge of the Hebrew Bible and contemporary Jewish tradition, not from the apocryphal book of Abraham. Right? Guy's second proposed evidence of an ancient Egyptian view of Abraham is even less defensible. Oh, this is horrendous. The text that Guy presents is a Sahidic Coptic panegyric praising a Christian saint copied in the 12th century. <laughs> Guy wants this to be a confirmation of an ancient book of Abraham. It's not. 
The text is found with three extant copies. The Christian tale, it's a Christian tale that Guy doesn't tell us about. He doesn't say that. No, that destroys his case. <laughs> this recounts the attempted martyrdom of a saint, but not necessarily the patriarch Abraham. Yeah, there was an Abraham that was going to be sacrificed in the 12th century Christian era. Guy is using that to confirm Abraham being sacrificed by Pharaoh way back 2000 BC, 3000 BC. Is he nuts? I, I, that is so insanely idiotic, it's hard to grasp that a mature man can present that kind of an argument. But what he does is, he doesn't give you the proper background historically. Oh, there's a parallel. A guy named Abraham is being sacrificed. Ta-da, Joseph Smith is correct. When you get to the historical context, nothing is further from the truth. It's a 12th century Christian text, and it's not about the patriarch Abraham. It's a Christian named Abraham. And yet this is in the church essay, man. <laughs> oh my, oh, I mean, that Guy even dare show his face is unbelievable. That is so, that is so embarrassing. In careful analysis that Guy intentionally fails to notice. <laughs> oh, he's backhanding John here. <laughs> if this Abraham were the patriarch, then the story presented is based on a legend recognized to be of Persian origin. Persian origin, John. Persian origin, Carrie. <laughs> the tradition that Abraham was cast into a fiery furnace by Nimrod. See, this is the old Hugh Nibley parallel. They're still mesmerized by Hugh Nibley's silly apologetics. They can't get out of that rut. And that's completely useless. Poor guys. Both Winstead and the great scholar, Coptic scholar, W.E. Crumb, however, showed that the more likely identification is with the Persian-era martyr, Abraham, Bishop of Arbella, modern Erbil in Iraq, who was beheaded for his Christian faith 348 A.D. under the Sasanian Persian ruler Shapur II. This identification is proved by the Coptic text itself, which John did not bother to translate. And if he did and he understood it, then he didn't give it to us as the historical background. In other words, John is doing Mormon apologetics. Just change the historical background and ta-da, we have proof that Joseph Smith was right. Abraham was attempted to be sacrificed and it does nothing of the sort. That's the sad state of Mormon apologetics, which the church apparently really smiles down upon. Because of course, they can't get any revelation out of their own deity. They've tried for decades now and they can't do it. So maybe we better defer to the apologists and see how good they can do. Uh, they're no better than the old guys who don't have a clue. The, the problem with the apologists is um, their scholarship is actually damaging the church's image, not helping. Boy, that's a tough one. Anyway, and 
Rittner goes on for another page or two on this the details of how the Coptic text definitely does not show Abraham being sacrificed by an Egyptian pharaoh in ancient time. I mean, this this is a wipeout. The altar for sacrifice by the idolatrous priest standing before the gods of Elkamah, Libnamah, Makah, Korash, and the pharaoh. He says, these describe the bedstead altar and foreign gods, etc. These are really canopic jars in ancient Egyptian. The LDS Church is wrong to question whether the vignette facsimile and its adjacent text must be associated in meaning. So see, Molstein doesn't have a clue. Right? Or he does, and he's carefully preparing the groundwork for faith. Forget the facts. We want to build faith. Because the facts don't support us. But we don't need facts. We get to invent our own religion. Isn't that what Joseph Smith did, right? Pretty breathtaking when you really see the implications of how these guys mishandle the evidence within the Mormon apologetic community. Wow, that's brutal, man. And then he shows how the breathing permit of whore was attached to facsimile number one, and that's the one that Joseph Smith translated. And he shows that fundamentally from Joseph Smith's own words it is undeniable that he thought he was translating the Egyptian hieroglyphic characters in the normal meaning of the word translate just as one would translate Greek and Hebrew Joseph Smith himself is the evidence and that's what the Mormon apologists don't want us to understand isn't that so odd <laughs> if they knew they had the truth with Joseph Smith being verified, they would put him up first, foremost, front and center. But they completely ignore what the prophet himself says. Because, of course, what he said doesn't match history. It doesn't match philology. It certainly does not match archaeology or Egyptology. Nothing works. The apologists know this. That's why they're bringing up all this irrelevancy for thousands of pages and thousands of footnotes. Yes, it looks impressive. Oh, this is scholarly. And now they can say, hey, we have answers. We've given answers to this problem. That's not the issue. Are those answers credible? That's the issue. And the answer is not by a long shot, not even close. It's a complete wash, man. This war is over. Joseph Smith lost. Mormon apologists are on the losing end of this. That has been clearly established by H. Michael Marquardt, Mark Conan, Robert Rittner, Klaus Baer. Crimini Jules Remy way back in Joseph Smith's day demonstrated that. It's been one consistent picture from the Egyptologist's point of view. Joseph Smith did not get it right. It's been nothing but a massive confusion, heart wrench, gut wrench for the Mormons for that reason. And so they're trying desperately to save Joseph Smith. And they can't. Furthermore, Rittner demonstrates, despite the insistence 
of the new LDS position paper, it is not true that Joseph Smith did not claim to know the ancient languages of the records that he was translating. Oh, we have evidence from guess who? <gasps> Joseph Smith. <laughs> In his published 1844 appeal to the freemen of the state of Vermont, the brave Green Mountain Boys, an honest man, Smith claimed to know Chaldean and Egyptian, among other languages. The supposed Egyptian word, su-e-a-ni, what other persons are those, is just gibberish. Smith claimed to know Egyptian is noted even by the LDS website posting in a quote from Phelps, who said, Smith being uniquely capable of understanding the Egyptian characters so that he soon knew what they were. Yeah. And then he describes the Egyptian hieroglyphics on facsimile number three, the, the hieroglyphs above the king's head, uh, by the hand, and all that, in three different figures. So, and it's certainly not true that there were no eyewitnesses' accounts to the translation process that Joseph Smith went through. That is entirely false. And he shows that. Every issue LDS apologists bring up in order to attempt to save Joseph Smith, not using Joseph Smith, of course, you can't do that, so you have to come up with your own ad hoc excuse and, and ideas, which always lower the Bayesian theorem probability that Joseph Smith is right, with every theory and argument that the Mormon apologists present, this does not increase the likelihood that Joseph Smith was correct it lowers the probability. My suggestion to the LDS scholars is you had better start learning what Bayes' theorem is showing. You're not saving Joseph Smith. You're condemning him with all of your lame duck attempts and slobbering and wanderings trying to save him with any kind of theory you can come up with. Every new theory lowers the probability. That's something you need to look into. Um, Dan Peterson on his Silly Interpreter site has some yo-yo Kyler Rasmussen who is now doing a Bayesian theorem analysis of the Book of Mormon. and I, This guy doesn't know his head from a hole in the ground. I feel so sorry for him. He's just so stupidly misusing Bayes' theorem. He's not even using Bayes' theorem. He's just simply doing a Mormon apologetic under the guise of mathematical rigor and Bayes' theorem. Oh, it's a train wreck, man. Anyway, so here's the, here's the conclusion. All of the Egyptian signs are taken from the breathing permit of Hor that Joseph Smith was translating in Egyptian alphabet and grammar. All of them, the Kirtland Egyptian papers. And the new texts in the Joseph Smith papers, volume four, on the Book of Abraham by Hauglid and Jensen, they also show this. And that's a church-sponsored publication. <laughs> that outdates its own website page. Uh, it's amazing on the Book of Abraham. So many contradictions. Exactly as one would suspect from facsimiles number one and three and the internal references within the Book of Abraham to the facsimiles, 
The inspiration and basis for the text of the Book of Abraham is Papri Joseph Smith 1.2 equals fragment 11 from the breathing permit of Hor, the second column. We have that in his translation papers, Joseph Smith's. This papyri column immediately follows the admitted source of facsimile number one. Molstein says they're not together. That's false. We, we know they're together. They match the fibers for Pete's sake. Confirming the explicit link between the text of the book of Abraham and the adjacent representation at the commencement of this record, Abraham 1.12. No lost papyrus was used in the composition of the book of Abraham. Uh, the apologists have lost the war. Joseph Smith blew it. The book of Abraham is not a genuine translation of the Egyptian papyri. Now, it may be some kind of a mythological text that correlates with something in the ancient world or whatever. You know, the Mormons want to salvage it because they love that doctrine of the premortal existence, which really is a fascinating doctrine, I will admit. Terrell Givens, When Angels Had Wings, talks about the early Christian idea of pre-existence, premortal existence. We know that subject is in the ancient Pseudepigrapha, the Book of Enoch, etc. So, I mean, there are some interesting things like that. But confirming Joseph Smith's translation, that can't be done. If you want to approach it from a mythological archetypal way, you know, about the creation, even though all Joseph Smith did is uh, use the Bible. <laughs> I mean, the Bible was the source for his idea on creation, of course. Chapters and chapters of Genesis is in the book of Abraham there. So anyway, and he shows... He shows the various places. I don't know if I'm even allowed to show this, but anyway, you've all seen that, where the papyri, each particular part of the hieroglyphic, and then you have an entire paragraph of the Book of Abraham. And he shows how all of these are genuine signs from the papyri. He goes on, he says, now, with the book of Abraham now confirmed as perhaps a well-meaning but erroneous invention by Joseph Smith, the LDS Church may well devote some reflection to the status of the text. Yeah, the time is here, guys. You've got a decision to make, and your credibility is shot to hell. So you better make the right decision. Despite its inauthenticity as a genuine historical narrative, the Book of Abraham remains a valuable witness to early American religious history, sure, and to the recourse to ancient texts as sources of modern religious faith and speculation. Well, see, the book still has its uses and significance, but not for the ancient world of Egypt and Abraham. See, the idea, the historical idea, Joseph Smith, the reasoning Joseph Smith used this theme was to establish his priesthood patriarchal line all the way back to Adam. You know, Abraham, Moses, Enoch, Adam, the patriarchs. But even that isn't the complete ancient history because there was a mother goddess anciently that Joseph Smith completely ignored. Probably because he didn't realize she was there, because she has been suppressed in the Bible. Joseph Smith 
woodenly, literally, simply just accepted, oh, the Bible said so, therefore that's history. That's how it happened, as the Bible indicated. So Joseph Smith's restoration is from the approach of a much later editor's political understanding and historical understanding of what the ancients were supposed to be like. It's not genuine history because we know the Bible is a late edited and put together document. 500 BC. It doesn't go all the way back to 3000 BC or 2500 BC or whatever as you want. This is why archaeology has so much trouble with the age of the patriarchs, truly, because we can't find any of them. They're just stories. And so Joseph Smith mistakenly understood that to be actual valid history, but those stories are of patriarchal approaches to ancient history where they got rid of the ancient mother goddess. And this is seen very well in ancient Greece with the great mother goddesses Athena and Demeter and Persephone and all that. The later patriarchal Indo-European migrations down south bringing in the Olympian gods and their group, Zeus, Hephaestus, Hera, and all those guys, this is a historical indication of a patriarchy stamping out a matriarchy. That's well known. Karl Ruck, uh, in his book on the classical myths of ancient Greece, is very excellent on that, I believe it, 1994. I've been reading that, it's fantastic. Same thing with the Hebrews. Raphael Patai, the Hebrew goddess. Eugene Sage, The Mystery of the Jerusalem Temple, with the embracing Keruvim in the temple. Margaret Barker on The Mother of the Lord. Scholarship is now beginning to recognize that there has been a very political bad job done on the ancient mother goddess and her very powerful role. She was not just a subordinate, she was the head dudette. <laughs> for lack of a better way to call her. She was the mother of the gods themselves. See, Joseph Smith's restoration has none of that. And so it's a very questionable theme altogether. But Joseph Smith did stick with the patriarchs because it gave him and one-upmanship on all of his contemporary brethren. I am the main one. Listen to me. See, that's the idea. But he blew it with the book of Abraham. He really did. But it gave him prestige in his day. He just didn't realize that we can now check on him. He didn't realize it would be photocopied. As my friend Shulam has noted, uh, Joseph Smith hadn't, didn't have a clue about we could photocopy this and absolutely everybody in the world can check on it. Joseph Smith kept it under lock and key at night for himself and was careful to have someone in charge there when he was showing the papyri and the mummies. But he didn't let it out of his sight. He controlled it. Well, now everyone can see it. Just use Google. So anyway, that's enough. I'm, I'm out of battery. My, my, uh, my camera is blinking right now. So anyway, thanks for watching my videos. 
Do good, be well, have fun, be kind, be friendly. It's a lot more fun to have friends, I promise. Be good to one another. We need to, really, truly. Uh, there, it, it is not necessary to make everyone your enemy because they think differently than you do. You know, it's all good. You know, there are different kinds of trees in the world that doesn't make other trees bad and some trees good. It's the variety and the beauty of color, texture. There are rocks and then there is water and then there are various kinds of trees. There's not just one kind of cloud in the sky. It's all one great big wiggle together as Alan Watts says so. So let's appreciate the variety amidst the wholeness, including and especially with our other fellow human beings. So anyway, now I'm preaching, sorry. Stay tuned, I've got more videos coming up.